0: This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingus, number one in its field. We resume our podcast with former high-profile bookmaker Bruce McHugh. Now to the part of your story that most listeners will want to hear about. It was the early 1980s. You were working on the interstate meetings on the Melbourne and Brisbane races at Rose Hill. In walks the big fella. Kerry Packer, he asks the bookmaker stationed right next to you for forty thousand or twenty thousand about a hurdler in Melbourne. The bookie knocks him back. You immediately tell Kerry Packer that you'll be happy to take the wager. What did he say? Do you recall?
1: Yes, he 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 could see that I was I was very keen to take the wages that the other bookmaker wasn't keen on, on accepting. And he looked at me, he said, do you want it, son? And I said, yes, thanks, Kerry. So they were the first words that we ever exchanged. And um, it went on from there. Uh, that was the start. Uh, nobody ever knew where it would end. And I suppose um, because of Kerry, of who he was and, and, the businesses he was in and the uh, ability he had in in making them uh, successful, um, I, I think looking back now, I never expected to have um, been involved with someone that was um, as exciting to be dealing with as what he was. Mm-hmm.
0: We should point out at this stage, Bruce, that Kerry Packer wasn't at the races all the time. He frequented the the big carnivals in the autumn and spring, so when he did turn up, you knew he meant business.
1: Yes, I, I, that's a good way to put it. As everyone would know that knows him reasonably well, he was an avid fan of foot rugby league and cricket. They were they were his I, I would presume his main two passions. But being being a, a race follower as well as his father was, Uh, he liked to get to the races when there was no football on. So it was between seasons. And when he'd come, he always had his offsider with him, a fellow called John John Rogan. Rogan, Rogan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and Rogan was originally an SP bookmaker who Kerry had bet with uh, probably when he was underage. Anyway, they became friends and... uh, and Kerry had come to the races, and uh, John would always be with him, and um, Kerry liked to bet in every race. (laughs) So when it was a Melbourne race coming up, he'd always be be looking at the Sydney Morning Herald over the top of his glasses, reading the form, and as they were going into the boxes, he'd say something along the lines of, uh, John put me a hundred thousand on Pete mm. and uh, John Rogan. There was probably five bookmakers that he bet with on the interstate, mm. he would run to the five of them and asked for 20000 on each, and some of them bet him and others cut him back and so forth, and usually by this time the race had started, and I could see that John hadn't been able to get the full 100000 on, and me being young and aggressive and confident, i call the, him and over.
0: gambler at heart.
1: Well, very much so. <laughs> yeah. I'd call him over and say, John, how much do you need to, more to go on. He'd say probably thirty five thousand. I'd say I'll take it. And John, by this time, <laughs> the races, the races, well and truly. So it was, but there was no, there was no um, anyone taking advantage of anything because. Kerry had said told John the bet, but he had a bad habit of of doing it very very late. So mm. he never. I don't think he ever bet early on a race. Or well, the only race he ever bet early was when he he backed his own horse in the in the. Um, um, the golden slipper. slipper, yeah, he had, Christmas he had tree, Christmas tree. Yeah, he had seven yeah. million to two million, and that was just after he entered the course. Mm-hmm. And I presume it was because he just wanted to have the bet and and not worry about the about what was going on. But mm-hmm. other than that, he never wanted to bet before before they were just about ready to
0: jump. Bruce, you've always said there were two Kerry Packers the one before he sold Channel 9 and the one after he sold Channel 9 to Alan Bond. He had plenty of spare cash then. John, it was
1: was a revelation, and I suppose mainly because I was involved in it, but, um, yeah, if Kerry had a bad day at the races and lost a few hundred thousand, that was a a bad day. And uh, um, I remember a day at Warwick Farm that he, I think he lost, He lost some hundreds to thousands, and he came to me halfway through the meeting and said, Bruce, I'm leaving the course now. I'm on my way home, and I'm going to London tomorrow for six or eight weeks. Do you mind if I leave the settling till I get back? And Mm. naturally enough, I had no reason not to say anything other than that. Mm. But I thought to myself afterwards, and it was a a sign that there was no animosity, or we both weren't trying to – to outdo the other, or, or no? You know what I'm getting at, yeah, yeah. anyway. Because I thought myself, if 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 it, the positions had it been reversed, I would have had one of my staff ring the next day and say, "Look, uh, Mr. McHugh's had to go to London. He'll be back in eight weeks. Will it be okay if he fixes you up when he gets back?" So that, to me, was a was a very personal trait that I observed in Kerry, and, and all my dealings with him were similar, and I've got to say that I've never had anyone easier to deal with, but uh, I think he was probably a different person when he was a business person. I only saw the one side. Mm. But referred to after after um, he sold Channel 9, and here again, you've got to remember, John, he only ever came to the races just a few times a year, and this is before mobile phones were available, and the only way for people in a brackets to bet was to come to the races. So if he was at home, he couldn't bet with me on course. He would have to be betting with SP bookmakers and so forth. But anyway, to cut a long story short, um after he sold Channel 9, the bets became um, usually in the millions mm-hmm. and um, and he'd. Uh, I knew this particular day that he was going to the races and I rang him at home in the morning and said, Kerry, um, I don't want you to have a heart attack and you don't want to send me broke. What about if we... <laughs> If we restrict the bets to win, say, two million. Tops. Yeah, so so yeah. any rate, any horse you wanted to back he could have two million to two hundred thousand or two million to five hundred thousand. Anyway, the first two bets at me that day on the interstate were, as we said, to win two million. And after that he walked over and you've got to remember he was a very tall man and I'm standing on a stand which puts me about nearly 12 inches above the ground, mm-hmm. and he's looking me in the eye, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'll use the exact words he used. He said, "Bruce, this is no <laughs> good to me. Let's go
0: back to the old." <laughs> Doesn't sound like Gary at all. <laughs> well, it was,
1: and it was funny, John, because it, there was no. Uh, and I've got to say that I enjoyed it as much as he did because mm. um, he was a gambler and so was I, mm. and it was it was something that didn't just start at the top. It worked up as we said. The first bet he had was forty thousand or twenty thousand, and then after that uh, he was betting in, in millions. But it was it was all relevant. It was all uh, it was just part of uh, of the process of of racing evolving. Mm.
0: Now, Bruce, that day that you mentioned where you cut him back to a maximum win of 2 million, he was doing 2.1 million coming towards the end of the day. He knew he was in strife. He wanted an even 6 million on a late favourite in Melbourne. Do you recall the occasion?
1: No, John, it would have been. Um, John, I'd, I only ever um, cut his bet back ever uh, was, um, and and that was a, a bet on the last race at Randwick one day. Uh, he was very friendly with with uh, Dittman, and uh, Dittman was riding a favourite for Tommy Smith, a horse called Brentano, and I'd finished betting on the day Melbourne and Brisbane were over, and he walked up to me and he said, Bruce, I want to have a a bet on the locals. And I said, Kerry, I'm not licensed to bet on the locals. And he said, Bruce, I want to have a bet on the locals. Mm -hmm. And my mind was spinning and I thought, oh, well, I can put it in my father's book. He was working on the rails. (laughs) So I said, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to back Brentano to win three million. And I, you know, that was, that was, out of the blue in those days. This is before it got it got to where it was at a later stage. And I said, no, what about – let's make it to win a million. And he said, yeah, that's fine. So John Bamford, who worked for me, uh, came over and I said, go up to to b- the local ring and, and work out a price for what what's the best price you can see. Uh, Brentano and, and bet Kerry to win a million and to put it in Dad's book. And um, so Kerry and John walked up to the Sydney ring and uh, John came back and said, I bet him $1.1 million to 800000 Brentano. So I said, right, well, go and tell Dad to put it in his book uh, to make it legal and put uh, Above board, so he went up to my father, and as you've already said, John, my father used to have a a scotch after every race, (laughs) and by the end of the day, and this was a very very busy day, um, this was the last race, and uh, so he was he was a little bit inebriated, and and John pulled his his uh, coat tail, and John looked and Dad looked around and he said, Bill, Bruce wants you to put a bet in his, in your book for Kerry Packer. And Bill thought for a split second and, and then stood up and everybody's fighting to get on because the race is ready to start. And he said, stop. And he turned to the, to the clerk that was recording the bets and said to Jack Kemp, Jack, 1.1 million to 800,000 Brentano. And Jack, who'd been working like a navvy all day and was just about, you know, at the end of his tether, he turned to Bill and he said, Bill, how many so-and-so noughts are there in that?
0: (laughs) Oh, that says it all.
1: <laughs> so that, yeah. that's but but that's the only time other than that every bet he ever asked me for, it was I was I was more than
0: happy to you accommodated accommodate, him. Yep. yes. Bruce yeah. he hated the media attention that his betting attracted. I mean, what did he expect? <laughs> At one stage he asked you if you would use a code word. The word was brick B R I C K to represent every million uh, invested, every million in the transaction, Uh, two bricks to one brick or whatever, you went to check with the stewards that uh, you you were allowed to do this.
1: Well, I I had to get – I didn't know whether it was – I'd never heard of it before, but it was something that he'd come up with. And uh, even though it was – if you're talking in – in riddles, people still know, but anyway, he wants to do this. And I went to the steward and I asked the steward, Could I record a bet in my ledger instead of being cash, being a brick? And a brick is equivalent of a million dollars. Mm. And the steward thought about it for a while, and I think they were, you know, they were. Pleased if they could help me, but they said no. Look, under the circumstances, you've got to just record it as as it is. So, um, so we went back to that. But uh, in hindsight, even if it had, we'd have been talking in in riddles. Everyone would have known because every time, because it was unusual, and and anything that's unusual, John, it attracts people's attention. Mm-hmm. So e- everybody on the course. They wanted to know what, what someone was doing and Kerry was was the uh, talk of the town at the time mm. uh, and uh, you couldn't keep anything secret. I had a, a, uh, a betting sheet that I kept in my top pocket and I used to write the bets on the official betting sheet uh, to keep it quiet. But I can tell you within a second of me writing it in the book, my staff knew, and then everybody else around them knew within two seconds. Of course, so it was it was impossible to hide what people want wanted to know.
0: Mm. In the mid nineteen eighties, his betting was extraordinary. As I said in the intro, there was one Randwick Autumn Carnival where you turned over one hundred million, which at the time you thought was more than the on course tote held.
1: Yes, well, John, it, it, he was an unusual person. As we know, he, he loved gambling. He was a, he was a, an avid um, better on uh, at casinos, and and there was even though he was betting in what we consider large amounts of money, they were never really of any. Um, they couldn't have made any difference to his lifestyle, no matter whether he won or lost. It was the, it was the thrill, it, and he needed to get that thrill. And the thrill to get was only to be got by betting in large amounts of money. Because uh, I don't know about you, but if I went to the races and I lost uh, um, fifty dollars, I wouldn't be worried. But if I lost five thousand, I'd be worried. Mm. So it's 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 a relevant thing, and uh, he was there for the thrill of it,
0: mm. Bruce. I've this is the point where I've got to ask you how you describe him as a punter. Was he a smart punter? Was he a silly punter? Was he a reckless punter? Was he sufficiently well informed,
1: John? He was he was in a brackets. A punter, right? So that fits into a category. Uh, he was well informed. He, when I say well informed, he, he wasn't a form student himself. He liked, he read the form and, and made his decisions on that. But yes, look, people, people, because of who he was, people of influence wanted to, to, Help him where they could, uh, if only for their own benefit at a later stage. So, he—if there was anything that uh, anybody that was close to him knew—he was always informed of that. But uh, he wasn't a, uh, a compulsive gambler insofar as uh, he didn't—he didn't. He didn't if he had if he had a bad day he knew when to stop and if he if he was winning he knew he he, he wasn't a person that played it up um so my assessment would be he was a typical punter now uh, the, the only difference he was from the smaller punter was that he bet in larger amounts but mm. he wasn't a fool um, as we know uh, he was—he um, had some sort of a uh, uh, an attitude when he played uh, um, at casinos. He had a uh, some sort of a uh, let's call it a system or a uh, a strategy, mm-hmm. and um, with racing. It, it wasn't, it wasn't available as much then as it is now. So he was just like 99% of most other people that went to the races
0: for a bit. Mm. Chasers are usually punters who get into trouble. You'd have to and say you, he was a chaser, Bruce, wouldn't you, because he'd bet the square up.
1: No, you, you could probably say that, John, but no, that's not the case. Mm. He... he he was more of a punter that liked to get a thrill mm. when he backed a winner. Mm. Um, and I don't think – he probably is, is like a lot of us. Uh, if you're losing, you tend to have a little bit more on to give yourself a chance to get, you know, to to win or to mm. get square. But, no, he was – he wasn't what I called a chase, the, the – The chasers are the biggest worry of any bookmaker because nine times out of ten, eventually they're never going to be able to pay.
0: A catalogue of almost 200 horses will be offered for sale at the final English Auction of the Year, the 2019 Ready to Race Sale at Riverside Stables on Tuesday, October 22nd. All horses are two-year-olds, broken in and prepared by experienced horse people and presented for sale literally ready to race. Each horse will undertake a breeze up session which is a gallop ending in a 200 metre sprint. Each breeze up will be recorded which will enable prospective buyers to get a gauge on a horse's action, size and potential ability. There'll be an additional Breeze Up session this year at Eagle Farm in Brisbane on Monday, September the 23rd and other sessions will be held at Cranbourne, September the 13th, Warwick Farm, September 20th, Taupo in New Zealand, September the 23rd, with a second session at Warwick Farm on Friday, October the 18th. The strength and quality of the English Ready to Race sale catalogue is unparalleled in Australasia. What about Kerry Packer's emotions at the racetrack? Did you ever see him excited by a win, or did you ever see him rattled by a loss?
1: No, I've got to say, John, I've never, I've never experienced looking at him. Uh, for example, when he's watching a race, by my memory. Um, he, you wouldn't know whether he had a bet or whether he was backing the horse that was leading or something that was coming home. He was, he was very um, sedate.
0: Yeah,
1: he, yeah, very sedate, um, and he, he had an extraordinary temperament. And I, I'm only talking about the part that I know because, if you remember when. Major Drive won the Sydney Cup and it beat yeah. Myer
0: Card. Well, I was leading up to that. This is probably the best story of all. It's the most bizarre story of all. Go on.
1: Anyway, he he uh, came and had seven million to four million on Myer Card, yeah. and uh, uh, Heath horse was uh, nine to second favourite.
0: Major Drive, and, yeah.
1: Major Drive, and and. Uh, he, wherever he watched the race, I think he was watching it with with um, Jack Ingham or something, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether Jack knew that he'd backed my card. But anyway, the long and the short was that after he won the race, uh, Jack said to him, "Now you're going to have to come down, Kerry, uh, and accept the uh, and take the uh, trophy." The trophy. Mm-hmm. And Ke- Kerry indicated that he really didn't want to do it, and and Jack, being Jack, insisted he did. So by this time, Jack was aware that he'd backed the the favourite, which had been beaten by Major Drive. Anyway, he went down. He uh, accepted the trophy and so forth. And and I I'd been friends with the horse the jockey that rode uh, Major Drive, a fella called Greg Hall. He rode yeah. a lot of horses in Melbourne for me, and um, he he. You know, he was was really excited, and Kerry was just uh, congratulated him and so forth. And it wasn't till later that evening, at a, when they were apparently together, when when Kerry told him, "Hey, I backed the second horse," and that by memory, listening to Greg, it was like it was like the the trapdoor going down. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Bruce, it was a surprise to many that he didn't want to be on major drive. The horse had had a terrific preparation. He'd won the Chairman's Handicap in a walk. He was well-weighted. John Maher had him 110%. Uh, whereas Meyer Card, admittedly, he'd won the Derby in a walk. But he was a three-year-old in the Sydney Cup. He was jumping up to two miles. There were a few a few things against him on paper.
1: John, everything you said makes sense, and that's where computers and, and form students come into their own. But John Citizen, which Kerry and I were at this stage, we just looked at, at the comparison of the two forms, and without going into them in depth, which you're talking about, it was very hard to think that um, major drive could beat um, could beat uh, the
0: favourite,
1: my card, yeah, my card. That mm. was that was just my, and that's the way I summed it up. And I think most people who took the the odds on my card thought the same way.
0: Right. Well, he took seven million to four million on. Now, how was that bet serviced? I mean, you you were fielding only on the interstates.
1: Well, that was probably. I think at the time, probably Dad had retired, mm. and. Uh, I'd made arrangements with um, Dominic Byrne, who was working on the rails. Uh, Dominic would accept his bets and keep a portion of it and then send down to me um, what part he wanted me to have. And to keep everything legal and straightforward, I would just pay Dominic the turnover on the business that I was given from Kerry that day. Um, that was entered into uh, Dominic's book.
0: Yep. Did you ever socialise with Kerry Packer? Did you ever see him away from the races?
1: Not really, no. I, we spoke on the phone uh, occasionally um, and I did go to his office one Monday, but I can't even remember what it was for. It wasn't anything of major. Um, but I, while I was there... Uh, he had a wonderful secretary, um, Pat Wheatley. Yep. And um, when I went in, Pat said, I'll just wait in in the waiting room. Uh, He's got a few things just happening at the present time. And I said, "Uh, Pat, it's not important. I can come back another day. She said, no, 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 just, just wait there. And where I was positioned, it was obvious that the people going to and from Kerry's were...
0: Copping a were, spray.
1: Well, they were copying something anyway. And <laughs> and, I, and I remember walking out again and yeah. saying, listen, Pat, I, I don't really need to see Kerry. She said, it's all right. He'll be there in one minute. Anyway, when the time came, I went in there. And it was at the time that Kerry was was very enthusiastic about polo. So he had his, his riding boots on and a pair of... Um, uh, a casual shirt and uh, and jeans, mm. and uh, I was struck by how, when I walked in the door, his demeanour demeanour must have changed completely because. Uh, Whatever had been happening while I was out in the waiting room, it was just evaporated when I got there because we talked about things that were totally irrelevant to his business and it was at the time that Vic Rail had a very good horse called
0: Vaux. Rogue.
1: Bo Rogue and for some reason or other somebody must have said to Kerry, you can buy this and he said to me, what do you think it's worth? I said, Kerry, the only, only way you'd put a price on it what it's worth to you for the enjoyment you're going to get out. Mm. Anyway, the long and the short, I said, I can't, I couldn't help you with that. Anyway, the long and the short it was, I'm sure that when I left the room and went on my way and something else happened in the office, I don't think Bo Rogue would have even got another thought for the rest of that day.
0: Mm. Bruce, can I ask you this? In finalising the Kerry Packer segment, I know you made a pledge to Kerry that you would never divulge the volume of his betting, but can I simply ask you this? Did Kerry Packer and his betting over that five-year period assure your future?
1: John, no, it didn't, no, because he bet so infrequently and he, he did have losses, but they were, at the end of the day, uh he was uh, – if Kerry Packer had never came along, it wouldn't have had any difference to my my lifestyle and Charlotte and to my wife. Right, okay.
0: Switching course now, you had 17 or 18 very happy years on the board of the old Sydney Turf Club, three of them as chairman. Were you in favour of the merge of the AJC and the STC? <laughs>
1: John, my thoughts were very were very uh, simple. If it was going to be good for the industry, yes, I was in favour of the merger, but it, it all depended on what the people that were going to be at the helm wanted to do. And by memory, I, I was gone by then, but I – it had it had to be for the right reasons, and John, as you know, with sporting bodies, it's very hard to get people aligned. And um, I, at this stage, I don't even know if it was a good or a bad thing, even looking back with with hindsight. Um, but all I know is that the, my time on the STC was very, very. It was it was a very major part of my learning curve in life for a lot of different reasons. But I was very lucky to have a lot of very, very good, decent people around me. And the staff at the STC was a credit to Pat Parker and Michael Kenny. They were, there wasn't one that I wouldn't have been happy spending time with Uh, and they all, to my knowledge were very good at their jobs and, and and fulfilled them correctly so it was and we we weren't shackled like the AJC with the running of racing so we we had more uh, opportunities to expand our business and, and not be held back by other outside Influences, and I think that probably frustrated the AJC because you know they had a stack of other things that they had to deal with, and we were always, to my memory, we were always the leaders. And I remember one instance, uh, which John, it's only a minor thing, but we had neglected the the BMW, and, and prize money wise, it had dropped down considerably, and it was. Showing up in the quality of the fool each year, and I remember going to this board meeting when we had to discuss uh, where we were heading with it and what we were intending to do. And it was very evident around the board that we wanted we we'd neglected it and we needed to do something about it one way or the other. And it became evident to me that the only way to do that was to add a big amount of money to the prize money, and I said to the board, what do you think about us increasing the prize money to $1 million? <laughs> yeah. Now, I can't remember what it was, was, but I remember I had Pat Parker on one side of me and I had uh, Michael Kenny on the other yep. and I could see the looks on their faces.
0: They had to they, find they, it somewhere.
1: They, they didn't want to have a bar of it. They said, <laughs> we haven't got the money. Anyway, it was evident we we went round the board and every board member wanted to do it, mm. and I remember we we just looked at Pat and uh, and Michael and just said Michael uh, find the money mm. and John you wouldn't believe it they'd found it within a week we had the money secured and we were up and running.
0: Mm. You you pulled, and rank, you pulled rank as chairman.
1: Well no, I think I think what it is, John, I'd been on the board long enough to know that the way that the workings go. Yeah. And and we had a we had a great team and, and once you threw the challenge out, it was surprising. Hmm. There was very so seldom any challenges we couldn't couldn't achieve.
0: Racing's got so much opposition these days, hasn't it? I I looked through an old Roundwick race book recently which dedicated several pages to the alphabetical list of bookmakers who were fielding in the paddock, the St Ledger and the flat. Several pages of bookies. Doesn't happen anymore.
1: No, John, and, and that's that's another case of everything changes in life. Um, as I've said to you once before, the only thing in racing that stays the same is horses go round courses everything else changes and that goes with every other sport and every other industry nothing ever stays the same and that's why I think people that that are happy with with change are always better off than those that try to oppose it um, and and John the thing about it is every every industry and every sport has its 15 minutes in the sun, and um, the good ones get a little bit longer. But nothing. Uh, there's just too many opportunities f- for so many other things for people to do that uh, racing's just fitting into a into a pattern where it's um, it it wasn't it it, it was. In years gone by, in the 30s and 40s, it was the be-all, end-all, and probably people thought it would never end. Well, that's been proven that nothing stays the same.
0: You were part of an exciting time in Sydney racing, and in taking on the big fella, you provided plenty of entertainment for the race crowds of the 1980s, and it's been lovely to reminisce about those golden days. Bruce, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, thank you, John. And this podcast was produced by Supernova South. The Stallion representation at the English Ready to Race sale on October the 22nd is a who's who of the breeding industry. Better than ready, niconi Brazen Bow, Not a Single Doubt, Deep Field, Rubik, Done Deal, and Shooting to Win. And we've just scratched the surface. Add to that Hinch Brook, So You Think, Holy Roman Emperor, Spirit of Boom, I Am Invincible, Starcraft, Medaglia d'Oro, Tavistock, More Than Ready, Written Tycoon, No Nay Never, and Zoo Star. Inglis again team up with Racing New South Wales by presenting the sale three days after the Everest. The timing will ensure the attention of world buyers who'll be focused on Sydney at Everest time. October 22nd is the date for the English ready-to-race sale at Riverside.